Please note, this episode contains some poor quality audio. If this bothers you, look for our next episode next month. I think for many people, they primarily interact with Amazon as a retailer. Amazon is much more than just a retailer. Now it is a massive logistics and delivery network, has its own planes. It is a um, big producer and publisher, so, you know, it's won Oscars. It has a private label, so that means it directly produces goods through its cloud computing service, Amazon Web Services. It's one of the biggest provider of what is now essentially infrastructure for, um, for the online world. So I think, you know, as we've seen Amazon expand into all these different lines of businesses, there are a lot of basic questions about how it uses its market power in one line of business to potentially privilege other lines of business. Welcome to Briefly, a podcast by the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm Chris Walling, Executive Online Editor of the Law Review. And I'm Max Samuel, Articles Editor on the Law Review. We are excited to announce that this is the start of Briefly Season 2. The format of the show is going to change a little bit, but the content of the show will stay the same. There's just one question that's been nagging me in the back of my mind, and it's just, why do we care about Amazon so much? Uh, Why is Amazon the subject of so many think pieces and antitrust articles lately? Chris, I've been wondering the same question. We have senators going on about possible antitrust enforcement against Amazon. We have lots of, as you said, articles on it. The core issue seems to be Amazon is huge. It's the world's second biggest company by value. Jeff Bezos, the founder, is now the richest man in the world by, you know, fairly big margin. Amazon's growing and growing. Prime Day was this ubiquitous cultural phenomenon. As it's been growing and growing, people have started to wonder, could Amazon be too big? Could it be so big that it's, you know, monopolizing certain fields, hurting consumers, hurting other retailers, even hurting national politics? Antitrust law is the traditional area of law that, you know, we judges, courts use to monitor big companies, make sure they don't get so big that they start hurting consumers. So, Max, are you telling me that antitrust law is going to stop Prime Day forever? (laughs) It might. It might. You know, if certain commentators have their way, National Prime Day might be a thing of the past. We had lots of questions, so we talked to Jeffrey Manny president of the International Center for Law and Economics, and Lena Khan of the Open Markets Institute. Our first question to our guests was, what is antitrust law? It's very clear that part of the intention behind the antitrust laws was a concern for the extent of competition, uh, ensuring that there was competition, the economy was kind of working efficiently. But it's also just as clear that one of the primary objectives was the protection of certain favored uh, political entities. That's Jeffrey Manny. Relatively rural um, farmers and, and sort of smaller businesses that were both sort of dependent on, um, but then also came, came to feel that they were paying too much to um, sort of the high technology of the days, uh, railroads and steel producers and the like. And so the very origins of antitrust had a political element to it. And over the years, I should say from the beginning, I think it's been recognized that it's a really powerful tool. And um, in some sense, the antitrust laws can act as a, a kind of meta-legislation. You, you can imbue them with anything you want. Moving into the 20th century, and especially around the 1960s and 70s, antitrust started to take on what's called the Chicago School of Thought, attributed to scholars like Robert Bork and Richard Posner. And overall, 
the Chicago School emphasizes this nebulous concept called consumer welfare? I think the first thing to point out is that the consumer welfare standard is not a decision rule. It's not uh, uh, operable. It is a sort of a, I don't know, a touchstone, a guideline. And since the 1970s, um, the, the sort of overarching dominant approach to filling in the content of the antitrust laws has been the some version of the maximization of or promotion of consumer welfare. As you can tell from the term, it's extraordinarily vague. Max, how does antitrust law actually work? At the broadest level, antitrust law divides mergers between companies into two big buckets, horizontal mergers and vertical mergers. So a horizontal merger combines two companies that do more or less the same thing. Imagine if Coca-Cola and Pepsi Corporation merge together, combining Coke and Pepsi, maybe not exactly the same, but very similar products, is a horizontal merger. And those are the type that tend to worry and get a lot of scrutiny from the Department of Justice and the FTC. Now, on the other hand, we have vertical mergers. Vertical mergers combine two companies that don't do the exact same thing, but are in related businesses. So imagine if Coca-Cola tried to merge with 7-Eleven. Coca-Cola and 7-Eleven are not direct competitors, but Coca-Cola makes the soda, and then 7-Eleven distributes the soda. To talk more about the impact the Chicago School of Thinking has had on vertical merger law, we talked to Lena Khan, author of a piece in the Yale Law Journal called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. Through the 60s and, and even through the early 70s, the government took a skeptical position with regards to vertical integration by dominant companies. So there was a recognition that if you are a, say, book retailer and a book publisher, you might have an incentive to um, discriminate against rival book publishers. There was an understanding that vertical integration could produce anti-competitive outcomes. The thing that was enabling companies to succeed was not so much um, whether they were providing a better good or product, but whether they had enjoyed a certain kind of business structure. Starting in, in really the, the 80s, we, we really did a 180 on how we approach vertical integration. And this was partly due to the influence of Robert Bork, um, who wrote this famous book called The Antitrust Paradox. And his theory was that actually vertical integration is usually quite benign. Instead of viewing it skeptically, we should appreciate all of the efficiencies that it's generating. For the last few decades, um, under the influence of, of the Chicago School approach to antitrust, enforcement efforts around vertical integration have really been scaled back. Two of the biggest vertical deals were allowed to go through during the Obama administration. So that was the Comcast NBC deal and Ticketmaster Live Nation. This scaling back of vertical integration enforcement has worried some commentators. And Max, when we talk about enforcement, we actually mean these mergers being challenged or blocked in some way, right? So enforcement is both the process of the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission picking which cases to try to stop and then going to court to make that happen. Lena Khan thinks the lack of vertical enforcement has been an important part of Amazon's growth. Yeah, and I mean, I'm glad you asked this because it actually opens up uh, a much bigger point, which is that 
you know, Amazon got to be Amazon today because we underwent a dramatic shift in how we think about antitrust and how we think about market power. In my article, I describe in detail two of the key strategies that Amazon has relied on in order to reach the scope and scale and, and, and dominance that it enjoys today. And those are predatory pricing and vertical integration. So vertical integration is when a company is involved in multiple tiers of the supply chain. Um, so the fact that Amazon is both a book publisher and a book retailer, for example, is a form of vertical integration. I think this is a major issue when it comes to Amazon, but also when it comes to the other big tech platforms. They're so vertically integrated, and that business structure creates a whole host of um, conflicts of interest. But not everyone agrees with this view. We asked Jeff Manny if he thinks it is a problem that antitrust law doesn't consider vertical integration. I think it is properly difficult. It should be hard to bring such cases because the overwhelming weight of the economic evidence suggests that there is no harm from these things. And the, and the question presupposes that um, there is harm or, or even potential harm from uh, vertical integration. I just don't think that that's been demonstrated. The overwhelming weight of economic evidence suggests that it's not harmful. So why should we even be sort of talking about it? What's the, um, you know, the, the concept that we might have excessive vertical integration it implies that we understand that there's a sort of baseline amount that we should have, and yet no one could rigorously defend that that we were uh, over that baseline in, in in any way. So I have a problem with the very premises of of the question that suggests um, that we should be taking a harder look at at vertical integration, especially. Let me just add in. These, these more innovative and, and evolving markets where vertical integration is often a function of a company like Amazon uh, evolving. But vertical integration is not the only area that generates this sort of controversy. You may have heard Lena Khan mention predatory pricing a little earlier. Predatory pricing doctrine looks at when companies lower their prices in the short term to drive out competition and then hurt consumers by raising prices in the long term. Max, can you give me some kind of example of predatory pricing? So imagine you have a McDonald's and a Burger King, and they're selling burgers right next to each other, each of them for about $2. The McDonald's, you know, it would like to raise the prices on its burgers, but if it did that, a lot of its customers would go over to Burger King instead. So McDonald's wants Burger King out of the market. And so it actually drops the prices of its burgers for a little bit to $1. Now, McDonald's is selling a $1 burger, Burger King is $2, and a lot of Burger King customers might start switching over to McDonald's. If McDonald's keeps it up long enough, Burger King might eventually have to fold because not enough consumers are coming there. Now, McDonald's might be taking a big hit with these $1 burgers. $1 might not even cover the cost that it takes to make a burger. But if McDonald's is engaging in predatory pricing, and it waits out Burger King. Then when Burger King collapses and McDonald's is the only place left on the block, McDonald's can jack up its prices. It won't start selling a $2 burger again. It might start selling a $3 or a $4 burger. And if it does that for long enough, it can make back all the money that it lost selling a $1 burger. And so even though McDonald's was lowering prices, in the long term, this whole strategy might end up having consumers pay more for burgers. 
the big change in predatory pricing doctrine um, was was twofold. So doctrinally, in the late 80s and then in the early 90s, um, Supreme Court Im- introduced what's known as the recoupment test. So it says that if you're a company that is you know pricing below um, a certain measure of cost, and um, you know somebody brings a case against that, you have to the plaintiff has to be able to show um, likelihood of recoupment. In our original McDonald's Burger King example, the recoupment is the money that McDonald's makes selling its $4 hamburgers without any competition to make up for the money it lost selling $1 hamburgers to drive Burger King out of the market. And practically speaking, that's had a huge um, chilling effect on on, um, predatory pricing cases. So we haven't really seen much enforcement in that area as a result of the recoupment test. Um, I think the recoupment test is is limited in, in in a variety of ways. Um, which I discuss in the paper. Um, And I think some of those limitations are heightened in the case of of tech platforms because these companies can engage in personalized pricing and price discrimination um, such that, you know, whether these companies are in fact recouping their losses is not very apparent. But I think the bigger issue with the Supreme Court's predatory pricing doctrine is it has embedded in it a presumption against predatory pricing. So there's language in, um, in in their opinions that say, you know, predatory pricing is irrational and unlikely ever to really occur. Since then, there's been a lot of empirical research showing that, in fact, predatory pricing can be very rational and um, actually occurs much more than the Supreme Court you know, assumed in its opinion. And I think this is especially true in the case of tech platforms, again, because these platforms are operating in winner-take-all markets, right? So the incentive to produce, to pursue growth over profits is very high because you just want to capture the market by having as many users come onto your platform as early as possible. And so when you have that set of market dynamics, predatory pricing can, in fact, become entirely rational um, because you really want to become the, the, big, the first player to become biggest as quickly as possible. We mentioned earlier that Lena Khan published a popular article on Amazon and antitrust. In her article, she had a very specific example where she believes Amazon engaged in predatory pricing. In 2008, there was a fast-growing e-commerce company called Quidzy. Now, Quidzy sold a few different things, but among those was diapers, and it ran diapers.com, which you may have heard of. Now, Amazon also sold diapers, and as Quidzy's diapers.com got more and more popular, started to take some of Amazon's diaper sales. Now, according to Khan, after Quidzy rejected Amazon's offer to buy the website, Amazon engaged in predatory pricing to try and drive Quidzy out of the market. Amazon did a few different things that Khan labels as predatory pricing. The first step, where it cuts prices to try to drive the competitor out of the market. Amazon slashed its diaper prices, nearly 30%, and started a rewards program called Amazon Mom, kind of like Amazon Prime, but free for new mothers. Quidzy thought about selling itself to Walmart, but then Amazon entered the picture and offered a competing bid. And at the end of the day, Quidzy ended up selling itself to Amazon. Now, here's the recruitment part of the story. After Quidzy sold itself to Amazon, Amazon's deep discounts on diapers, its generous Amazon Mom program, those things started to disappear. Diaper prices rose almost back to their pre-Quidzy levels, and Amazon Mom started to get less and less generous. 
Khan argues that even if Amazon didn't make all of its money back just raising the prices of diapers after it bought Quidzy, they sell other things. They sell t-shirts, electronics, books. Maybe when you're buying your diapers, you want to buy some overpriced Coca-Cola at the same time. Amazon is making money from diapers purely because it sells you so many other things. But Jeffrey Manny is skeptical of this story. That might be plausible in a world in which Amazon was not facing competition in some of those markets. But it's, I think, virtually impossible to identify a market in which Amazon is not facing competition. And how many consumers are going to say, hey, look, I love the, the cheap uh, diapers I can get. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pay double for, um, for this six-pack of Coke um, you know, and have it sent, shipped out along with my diapers. They're not going to do that because they're going to go to their store and say, geez, Amazon's selling these Cokes for twice what I can get them at the local grocery store, who, by the way, will deliver them now as well. It's really hard for me to see that, that Amazon has the capacity to um, use sort of complicated schemes to recoup its alleged losses. I really think that, that the argument is most coherent when it comes to the effect on, on potential competitors. But as I said, I just don't think that antitrust should or does take account of that. We asked Manny if he thinks Amazon has violated current antitrust law, such as engaging in predatory pricing, as the doctrine is defined today. It is really hard for me to see any uh, viable antitrust argument against Amazon, either because they don't have market power in any obvious market, um, because it's very difficult to see them engaging in any conduct that looks anti-competitive. Lena Khan has made the argument that they are engaging in some kind of um, predatory practices, underpricing in order, I guess, to, to push all of their competitors out of the market. And then at some undetermined point, a couple hundred years from now, They'll jack up prices and, and recoup all of the money they've lost by, by predatory pricing. It's just a really far-fetched story that I, I have a hard time believing. And if it is the strategy that Amazon is pursuing, I think we will all benefit enormously from it because as long as they keep engaging in predatory pricing you know, for the indefinite future, we all benefit from it. And um, uh, I think if they ever try to, to recoup potential benefits of that strategy, I think they would be, um, you know, sort of trounced instantly. And we all will have enjoyed this, this extended period of predatory prices, low, you know, low prices on everything, and Amazon will have nothing to show for it. I'm trying to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, not being very successful <laughs> in trying to say, I just don't buy it. But for Manny, it's even deeper than this. He thinks that predatory pricing doctrine, the way it's constructed now, correctly weighs the error costs associated with antitrust law. Max, what's error cost? So error cost is the idea that when you engage in antitrust law, regulation, and a, a whole swath of different things, you can get it wrong in a few different ways. On the one hand, you could be saying no to too many things. In antitrust law, you could be stopping too many mergers. On the other hand, maybe you're not stopping enough mergers. Maybe you're letting too many things through. So when we want to say we're thinking about error costs and antitrust law, it's balancing these two concerns. Are we doing too little or too much? Too many mergers or too few? Both are bad, but if we think about a range of antitrust strictness, a range of scrutiny that we apply to mergers, there's a trade-off. You can't stop every merger while also letting through the really beneficial ones. Manny thinks that predatory pricing doctrine is striking this balance just right, or close enough as things are. 
it's sort of a great example of uh, error cost analysis in action in antitrust. And basically it says, look, there's obvious benefits from lower prices. That's the whole point of antitrust. And it's really hard to identify when low pricing might actually be anti-competitive, right? Theoretically, it's possible. And, um, uh, you know, one, one can imagine it. Um, but it's really hard to identify, at least until well after the fact. Recognizing that there are enormous positives from allowing low prices and that we're liable to get it wrong if we try to intervene, we have a rule that basically says we're not going to intervene unless we think there's a really good likelihood that this is, in fact, uh, the kind of pricing scheme that, that might ultimately be anti-competitive. Even though they're offering low prices now, they're going to recoup it later um, by charging sufficiently high prices that it uh, counteracts all of the low prices. That's a, a very restrained and sort of cautious approach. Jettisoning that would have indeed mean that more predatory pricing cases would be available. It would also mean that we would get it wrong more often. You know, I can't say for certain, of course, that it would be wrong in the Amazon case. But again, I have seen no very compelling argument to think that um, we would actually be getting it right if we were to, to make it easier and bring a predatory pricing case against Amazon. Khan's take on predatory pricing is also tied to her view on the nature of antitrust and what antitrust laws are meant to accomplish in the first place. Basis for saying that predatory pricing is anti-competitive and should be treated as illegal under the antitrust laws is because there was a recognition that if you have a company that is able to basically, you know, get a lot of Wall Street support to, to bankrupt its rivals, um, that's not going to be good for competition in the long run. Current predatory pricing doctrine doesn't take into account entry barriers in a, in a serious way. So the idea is, you know, if, if a company engages in predatory pricing and then ends up pushing its rivals out of the market, raising prices, that's not really going to be an issue because the moment it starts raising prices, you're going to see this flood of new entrants. I think the empirical evidence shows that that's not actually how it works, especially when you have a company that has a history of engaging in predatory pricing. Newcomers are going to be very wary of stepping to the market. There's a bunch of research that looks at how this played out in the airline context. So I think if the focus is competitive markets, a competitive process, which is really what the goal of the antitrust laws is, then I think you know ensuring that predatory pricing is policed closely is really important. One could even say that the disagreement about predatory pricing is really a disagreement about the fundamental purpose of antitrust law. Khan believes in a broader purpose, protecting the competitive process writ large. While Manny has a narrower view, emphasizing how antitrust law is aimed at protecting competition, but not necessarily the competitors themselves, that is, the other businesses. Part of the argument, I think, the sort of predatory pricing argument against Amazon is that we can see some of the harm that this alleged conduct is causing because we see small local retailers, for example, struggling to compete with Amazon. The argument is in part that the, the harm that Amazon is visiting is not being visited upon consumers, people who buy things from Amazon. It's, it's competitors, these local merchants, uh, that that are alleged not to be able to compete in a world in which Amazon can, uh, is so efficient that it can offer products considerably lower price than anyone else can. And these guys go out of business and communities suffer and all of this stuff. The problem with that is that, that the consumer welfare standard does not recognize um, 
you know, a sort of aesthetic preference for relatively small retailers in a market as a, a, a viable antitrust harm. Some people have a preference for that. Some people would rather that we have lots of small sellers, even if they're selling at high prices. By the way, that language almost exactly was used to justify uh, enacting the Sherman Act in 1890. It was not just about the, the farmers who were who were allegedly being gouged by uh, railroads, but it was also about the local grain sellers, you know, the local you know, feed store that was being uh, undercut by a you know, larger company in Chicago that was shipping its stuff by railroad. It is an inherently political preference and one that I believe has no, no place in antitrust. If we care about those things, we should do something about that through the, the political mechanism we have, which is through you know, legislation. So, Max, we've heard Lena Khan and Jeff Manny kind of give their take on Amazon's current antitrust problem. Where does this leave us? What, what's the future like for Amazon and antitrust? Maybe it's not, does Amazon violate antitrust law as it is right now? But does Amazon show us how antitrust law might be broken? Show us things that need to be fixed? Maybe there's more antitrust law needs to protect. Right. It's it's tough to say. I mean, is the current state of antitrust law prepared for a company like Amazon? I don't know. There's never there's never been a company in history like it, right? U.S. Steel didn't also sell, uh, you know, Xboxes. Bell Telephone didn't also sell baby clothes. There's been no large corporation like Amazon in American history. We'll end this episode in the most satisfying way to end a briefly episode by saying, eh, I don't know, maybe the law itself is broken. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I want to thank again Max Samuels for agreeing to help out the online team with this topic. Special thanks to Jeremy Rosansky and David Sandifer. This episode was edited by Seth Schaffel. We'd love to hear your feedback on the episode. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Email us at uchicagolawreviewonline at gmail.com or tweet us at uchilrev. The Law Review is accepting submissions for its print version. Look for details on Twitter and at lawreview.uchicago.edu. Also, be on the lookout for our new blog. It should be up sometime in August. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and soundcloud.com slash uchilrev. Thanks for listening. Music was provided by bensound.com.